there's 22 people in the kitchen that were all full-time. Out of those 22 people, we only had four people that qualified for JobKeeper. Ironically, the whole kitchen team, inclusive of the ones that weren't qualifying for any sort of financial support from the government, every single one of them donated their time to cook for homeless people. And I just thought that was pretty amazing. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. One thing the pandemic has shown is how adaptable we are. It's also shown how, in the face of adversity, that empathy lives and breathes in human nature. And in most instances, we have each other's backs, no matter how messy it gets. During the pandemic, we've seen hospitality workers do extraordinary things and take extraordinary chances too. Adam Liston is the head chef of Adelaide's Chabot Show and new restaurant, Show Show. Adam, how are you going? Good, mate. How are you? Good. You've had, um, like many, a bit of a wild ride in the last couple of months um, and done many things, um, including just at the moment opening a new restaurant during a pandemic. What What are you thinking? <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of people think I'm pretty crazy, but I think at the end of the day we, we were sort of forced into a position where we have to reopen this, this site. I'm currently at Show Show now. Um, we didn't really have a choice other than to, to redevelop it and turn it into something that we can make work. Well, it, it was uh, Joybird, wasn't it, uh, originally? And um, I guess that kind of closed uh, a couple of months ago and um, you've reinvigorated the space. Is it inspired by uh, Chabot Show at all? Is there synergies there? Uh, there is. And like in fairness to the, the COVID kind of conversation, I mean, Joybird wasn't affected by COVID at all. Um, we actually made the decision to close that restaurant uh, pre-COVID kicking in um, and that was just for the reasons being that the the restaurant wasn't performing um, and it was always a vision moving forward because the lease is so long here that we had to do something to reinvent um, and that show show sort of concept was something that we'd been talking about leading up to it but um yeah, there is definitely a, a good correlation between the two restaurants, but they're completely different, especially now that we've seen the site grow and the menu's been executed and we're only a week away from opening. I mean, we did a, we did a first function last night. So, yeah, now that I can see the space and cook in the space, yeah, it's definitely a correlation, but it's um, they're not the same restaurant at all. Well, we can get into that a little bit later. Do you want to take us back early on when the lockdown happened. I remember on Instagram, you put a, a video up and it was, um, you know, you were sort of hard on your sleeve sort of stuff. And um, it was sort of a call out to um, get um, chefs like yourself involved to help feed people. Can you, can you take us back to that time and what it was like? Yeah, look, to be honest, I was in a, a situation leading up to this stuff where my role in the businesses had changed a little bit and I was working pretty closely with my business partner who's the, the probably bigger boss of, a, of a, a number of different restaurants and some of those restaurants I'm involved in and some I'm not. And we were in a spot at that point where in particular me and him were really working on like business development and this COVID stuff came on board and I think – 
yeah, I just got a little bit kind of sketchy with what was going on, like most chefs and restaurateurs and front of house people that are around the country and around the world. All we kept hearing was that there was going to be this big demand for, you know, people that weren't being able to cook food for people in hospitals and nursing homes. And I was probably just a little bit, probably scared of having nothing to do. And I kept hearing all this stuff about there was going to be a big need for that. So we kind of went out with a social media post and sort of offered some help because at that time we were completely unsure of what the government was going to do. There was no job keeper, no job seeker, no, none of that stuff was around. Um, and we were just trying to use our kind of skills to, to help. Um, and that went, yeah, it went through a really pretty heavy road. There was a lot of stuff that went on there that, that was pretty good. There was a lot of rewarding things and there was a, a lot of things that opened up my eyes and opened up my business partner's eyes that we were very disappointed in. But, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty full-on time like it was for most people. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you got involved in there? Because I know that you were um, helping homeless people and you were trying to create meals for those on the front line working and you're also trying to help inter- workers on international visas who had no uh, income and um, no jobs. Yeah, it was pretty layered and we didn't go into that really knowing what we were going to be able to offer and through that kind of social media post and that video, we got a lot of people coming and messaging and emailing, sort of trying to access the stuff that we were potentially going to offer. And at the time, I probably thought we were going to target hospitals and nursing homes. And the thing that we quickly realized that there's a lot of red tape uh, when it comes to working for hospitals and nursing homes. So there's like police checks, there's like obviously skill sets that you need that a lot of chefs don't have. And I'm one of those people that don't have them. I mean, we don't, I don't cook, um, I'm not experiencing cooking food for people that are unwell. Like I don't, I don't know the nutrient level that people need. I don't have the, the skill set. Um, so we quick, quickly realized that we were one, not skilled at potentially offering that service. And then two, the red tape that was involved in it was pretty full on. And not to say that I wouldn't pass a police check because I think I would, but um, <laughs> yeah, it, it just, it actually just became something that was pretty fucking frustrating. So what ended up happening was a, a company uh, in South Australia, which is um, called Westcare, which is a, a private company. It's not a government company. Um, they were in a position where they were cooking for and have been for, you know, 20, 30 years cooking for homeless people of Adelaide. Um, but those volunteers that were traditionally cooking for those people were in that age bracket of that 60 to 70 mark, which is the, the danger zone. So those volunteers were put in a position where they didn't want to put themselves at risk. And then these guys contacted me and ironically there was this loophole in the system where we could actually cook the food for these homeless people from the Shibosho kitchen so they would drop off the food to us, we would process that food, then they would pick it up. So in a lot of ways, actually ticked all the boxes because we weren't throwing our staff into harm's way, we weren't going into populated environments, we were in a, in a controlled kitchen, which is the kitchen that we obviously have at Shibosho, and the recipe just seemed to work really well. So that we did that for for ages we did it we were serving 900 people per week wow um what sort of food were you cooking uh to be honest like we didn't really know and that was 
one of the exciting things from it. Like you don't, you know, as a chef, you know, when you're ordering food at night time, you know what it is that you're going to get the next day to process that product. The thing that was kind of cool about this situation is it was all donated product. So a lot of that was vegetables and there was some specific kind of need from, you know, obviously a lot of these homeless people, you know, were diabetics. We had to kind of steer away from cooking with sugars and, and cooking with high fat levels. Um, but we were predominantly just working with vegetables that were being donated. And I think that the best thing that came from that was we're in a position where I normally would entirely write the menu for uh, Shabo Show, but the team that were, you know, volunteering their time, they were in a position where they could be creative. So, we'd, yeah, the sort of food that we would cook, we'd just sort of make it up on the day. It was, just, it was a pretty good, like, kind of team bonding experience to, to be creative in a time when most people were pretty fucking bored. What was it like cooking for homeless people? You're normally having um, guests come in and spend, you know, sometimes quite a substantial amount of money in your restaurant. Um, did, did that um, change your view on things? Uh, not really. I actually kind of found the process pretty liberating. And I, I, one of the biggest things that I took from it, which is a double-edged sword, that the problem at Shibosha at that time was there's 22 people in the kitchen that were all full-time. Out of those 22 people, we only had four people that qualified for JobKeeper, and that was due to, to their visas. And ironically, the whole kitchen team, inclusive of the ones that weren't qualifying for any sort of financial support from the government, every single one of them donated their time to cook for homeless people. And I just thought that was pretty amazing. So it didn't really change my view on, on food. It, it just made me think, wow, it's pretty amazing that these people are, are prepared to do that. And they, and we did it for, we did it for a fair chunk. Like we, we didn't really have anyone that like pulled out at all. Not one of them did, and it was pretty pretty awesome just to see how many people like donated that time. You also started Doctor Show. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean that was the other bit that happened through that social media post. There was a lot of different um, kind of organisations that had contacted us, and one of the popular ones was actually doctors and nurses. There was a bunch of messages from um, people that were working in hospitals here that were working overtime and the cafeterias in those hospitals were being closed down through to COVID. So they were in a position where they were doing overtime and going home. And I think the biggest thing that stood out to me was that there was a nurse that reached out and said that she was going home after doing a 13, 14 hour shift and, and eating a toasted sandwich. And I was like, that's what fucking chefs do. Like we, we always do that sort of stuff. And she said, look, we're not, we're not in a position where we need a donation from you guys. We want to, actually get good nourishment and we want to eat food that you know this kind of shibosho-esque food can we sort of pre-order it and and go through that so we we did that for a while and it was it was really good i mean yeah we we had a sort of pickup service for anyone that wanted to and we also had a delivery option for that um it was really good it was good to it was good to sort of cook the food that we do at shibosho but um look at it from a different perspective it wasn't like coming to the restaurant and indulging in a night, it was more about, okay, we're cooking this food because these people actually need nourishment. It was, it, was, it was liberating. Did that change your approach in the kitchen and did it change dishes the way that you um, put them together? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, look, like a lot of other restaurants around the country, like we went into that sort of takeaway mode and um, then obviously that, that service was a takeaway mode and we, we, we did that in layers. We tried to offer a, a service that would be reheated and then there was another service of that menu where we'd give cooking instructions and I think I've, I've watched a lot of restaurants around the country do that. Um, from my side, like it was good. Uh, but it's definitely not a skill set that I've got. It's not something that I really want to revisit again. I'd sort of rather cook in a restaurant. Um, and it was a little bit a little bit disheartening as well, especially when you're talking about Asian food. You know, and I'll use two examples, one being, you know, Japanese-style style raw fish. You know, that doesn't really travel well. You've sort of got to be at a, at, a, at a point where it's at the right temperature. And then another one is... You know, like the dumplings and stuff from a Chinese level that we make at Shibosho, they're based on, you know, being handmade with good ingredients and served at the right temperature. All of a sudden, you know, we're throwing six wontons into a takeaway container and they're, you know, being eaten at lukewarm temperature. It was pretty shit. But, um, yeah, it's not something I want to revisit. How did you get into the industry? Like, wh- why did you become a chef? I never really wanted to, like, to be honest. I was, as a younger younger guy, I was a surfer. So I <laughs> finished high school and I got into university and I, I deferred it for a year because I wanted to keep surfing. And ironically, you know, to make money and surf during, like, during the day, I would, I would just cook or wash dishes at night time. So I did that for a, a couple of years. And then eventually I moved from Adelaide to New South Wales for the reason of surfing and, you know, just sort of had that sort of mentality of, let's just surf during the day and, and cook and make money. And I did that for a couple of years and eventually I started working with people that were pretty inspiring and I realised that, you know, that was something that I really wanted to do. So outside of that, I mean, my my mother's a really good cook. My, both my grandmothers were awesome cooks. Um, but no, there's no there's no beautiful story about why I wanted to be a chef at all. You mentioned briefly, though, that there was a couple of key uh, inspirational um, people that you worked with, what what were some of the key moments in your career that uh, set you on different paths and influences? Um, one person I did work for that I, I learned a lot from was Ray Capaldi. He was he was pretty like inspirational. Um, so he's probably the the biggest note. But outside of that, most most of my stuff was kind of done through travel. Like I I spent a lot of time and worked in in Shanghai and China. So I really got a lot of like absorbing information of being in that scenario which was which was really good um but then also working with like the business partners that i've got now the guy that i'm in in partnership with at the moment was the first guy that employed me as a head chef here in adelaide and he's he's been a friend of mine for now for you know 20 25 years um how would you explain the food that you're doing at shabot show and also um show show at the moment uh there's always been, because it sits on Lee Street in Adelaide, which is a semi-party street and it kind of, you know, verges on the end of a, a street called Hindley Street, which is everyone kind of uses as equivalent to the King's Cross of Sydney. Um, and that street's pretty pretty full on. There's a lot of, like, mixed characters that run up and down that. Um, then Lee Street kind of feeds off of that and Shibosho sits in the middle of that street. So it's more of a... It's an aggressive kind of fire cooking, punchy, loud party izakaya. Um, so the food, yeah, verges between cooking Japanese, Korean, Chinese. There's no Southeast Asian like kind of touches to any of that stuff. 
Um, and it breaks a lot of rules. There's no, there's nothing traditional about anything that happens at Shibosho. Show. Um, but then, you know, moving over to Show Show, Show Show is a little bit more of a, it's a bigger restaurant for the start, and it's it's a little bit more luxurious, and there's a, a lot more of a focus on on tempura. So there's a little bit more tradition to it, a little bit more finesse at Show Show from what I can see so far. Izakayas in Japan are very much, you know, like dining dens and elbow to elbow drinking houses, uh, with with restrictions uh, currently in place. You know, how, how do you think that'll manifest with the restaurant at the moment? Look, at the risk of not wanting to come across as lucky me, the the Adelaide dining scene, from what I can see and from the information that's been given to me from my major business partner, who's got other restaurants. I've been quite surprised with those restrictions being lifted. I always had a theory that we'd discussed pretty heavily with our partners that we knew once the restrictions were lifted that we'd get a real big influx of, of clientele. Um, and that's obviously because people have been held captive. Um, but now in South Australia, because we've been in that situation for a couple of months now, it's actually a little bit surprising to see that the restaurant trade seems to be pretty stable. So Shibosho, I mean, Shosho is not really technically open yet. We've only gone through some trial openings. But Shosho, or Shibosho, sorry, um, has actually seen a really good steady growth of people coming out of this pandemic. So, yeah, we're lucky on that, on that front. And the information I get from, you know, other chefs and restaurateurs in, in the state, it sounds like business is, is sort of getting more stable and, and it's not looking like it's going to shut down unless we obviously go through, you know, the unfortunate situation that Victoria is going through right now. How do you feel about that at the moment, you know, seeing that they're in a lockdown and um, it's with the potential that it could happen in any city here, are you, are you nervous about the future or do you think we're going to, it's going to be okay in Adelaide? Definitely nervous. And, I mean, I speak to a lot of guys in, in Melbourne that are, are close friends of mine that are chefs and run their restaurants. And, you know, I spent a couple of years living in Melbourne and cooking there. Um, and it's really sad to, to hear, you know, the things that are going on and also watching, like, the stuff on social media. I, mean, I can't imagine how it would be for... For Melbourne right now, I mean, they, they've just reopened and they've sort of started to get their groove back and then all of a sudden, you know, it's all shut down for, you know, lockdown for six weeks. I mean, that must be so heartbreaking. And then, you know, obviously listening to some of your podcasts and listening to the people that you've interviewed and, and the pain that they've gone through, yeah, I, I can't imagine how that would feel. Um, in terms of South Australia, I think... I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that we're going to... I hopefully not going to go through this pandemic again it seems like we've got something under control and it seems like you know we're not getting new cases every day but um yeah yeah it's 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 a concern but at the moment i'm i'm pretty confident we'll be okay with show show about to open you know how are you feeling about it you've opened new restaurants before but it hasn't been breaking out of a pandemic is it does it feel different it does and i was thinking about this before got on the phone to you the I guess the thing about show show is yeah I mean it was disappointing that we that we that we sort of had the unfortunate situation of, of Joybird um, but at the same time I think one of the positives that's come through this pandemic for us looking at show show is that it's given us a lot of time to think it's given us a lot of time to 
plan and execute the way that the restaurant looks. The menu's been tested more times than I probably ever had the chance to at Chabot Show. Um, and also the fact that we've, because of the JobKeeper stuff and the, and the good relationships that we've got with the landlord and obviously the suppliers, we're actually in a position at Show Show where we could, the restaurant seats 90 people, but we've gone into it saying that we're only going to do services where we do 20 people in a sitting. So that luxury comes from the support of JobKeeper and obviously our suppliers and, and landlord. Um, and that gives me a little bit of confidence going in, going, okay, well, we're going to get this product right before we increase the capacity of what we're going to serve. So, And on top of that, ironically, the restaurant we launched the, the fact that you could book in it uh, from last week and we've got a steady influx of bookings now for the next three weeks. So well, I feel good about that and that's, um, yeah, I'm just trying to turn something that was negative into a, into a positive and that's one of the positives that I see for Show Show. You, you just mentioned that uh, you've spent the most time you've ever had on a menu leading up to opening a restaurant. Um, what's some of the dishes that you've created that you're quite excited about? Uh, I never really wanted to do tempura because I'm, you know, someone that's, I traveled to Japan well, prior to the pandemic. I normally average a, you know, twice a year sort of trip and it's pretty heavy eating. And I know the level of detail that goes into tempura, but my, my business partner is pretty passionate about it. So, um, I really enjoyed taking that challenge on. So what we're trying to do with that is a sort of similar Shibosho-esque view of, uh, respecting where that kind of cuisine comes from, but also making sure that we, we bring our own kind of energy to it. So one of the probably most exciting dishes that we've got on that we tested last night was a, a crab head that we get from the guys at Two Golfs Crab, and that's a blue swimmer crab head. We layer uh, Obviously, the, the head's been cleaned out. Uh, we cook a tapioca in crab stock from the shells, layer that in the bottom, and then we steam the hand-picked meat, and then we've got a recipe from a, a Singaporean place that, that does this white pepper sauce. We layer the, the crab with that white pepper sauce and then we just cover the, the sauce with tempura batter. So it's like a, a three-layer kind of crunchy, gooey, steamy, peppery, not very tempura, kind of breaking the rules, that, that, that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm excited about that. How do you think uh, the lack of travel or international travel is going to affect uh, food in this country, you mentioned earlier about how you travelled to Japan um, a couple times a year, and and also a lot of your training was to do with travelling. Um, what sort of impact do you think that'll have ongoing? Uh, I think, well, from a business perspective, it's pretty. It's probably pretty positive that people in the state are going to, you know, constantly support the restaurants and bars and stuff that are in the state. Um, and I don't want to sound rude to any South Australian restaurants but generally what I would do would save my money to I'd eat out and obviously my favorite place is here but pre this pandemic my goal was always to kind of save my money and go to Japan or Hong Kong and and eat there um so that's disappointing from a personal level but from a positive perspective I feel that it's really brought the community back together and there's Especially in South Australia, and I obviously can't speak for the other states who haven't been, have the ability to go there, but um, the level of support from the community has been amazing and the amount of people that have like really wanted to come back out and support restaurants has been yeah, pretty, pretty awesome. 
So, yeah, I don't know. At the moment, it's a, again, it's a double-edged sword. I think it's a positive to some degree. But at the same time, yeah, it's obviously personally disappointing that we can't, can't get on a plane and go and eat something completely different. A little earlier, you were sort of saying about how, you know, travelling was a big part of your training. What, how did you end up overseas? What was the process of, of getting those sort of gigs? I was just lucky enough to be in a situation where I was working in Melbourne after moving from South Australia to Melbourne and I had a contact with a lady that, that had some connections in Shanghai and she kind of reached out to me and said, you know, do you want to have a look at this position? So I didn't really know if I was capable of doing it and sort of went through that, that process and then, you know, there was a few emails and eventually this you know, owner of the restaurant said, look, we're going to fly over and, and cook get you to cook for us um, and I did that, I did that on my own and yeah, I sort of came back, they'd offered me the position and I spoke to my partner at the time about um, whether or not we are going to make that commitment and we decided that we would um, and that just completely changed everything like for me as a chef because being immersed in that culture was one, pretty challenging from a, a perspective of communication, I don't speak Chinese at all. Um, and to run a kitchen, which was, you know, that, that particular kitchen was like 27 chefs that, you know, only two of them spoke English. Um, it really just kind of shaped the way that I learned how to communicate with people through actually doing movement instead of actually talking. So, and on top of that, like being in that situation, also living in an environment where um, you were subjected to, you know, all that beautiful food that Chinese people cook. And then being in China and having the ability to go to places like, you know, Japan pretty easily, it's only an hour and a half flight to Tokyo from from Shanghai. I mean, that was just an easy thing for me to constantly do. So that was the, probably the biggest thing from my side that um, shapes what I cook now, just the ability to, to be involved in different culture. You mentioned earlier about the majority of your team um, not having government assistance, but they turned up to volunteer and help cook for homeless people. Have you have you managed to hold on to many of those staff after reopening and also on the verge of opening the new restaurant? Yeah, well, ironically, yeah, we didn't lose one staff member, and that's a credit to them because you know a lot of the guys and girls in the kitchen, obviously, they were donating time for the homeless, but they they also went out and and got. Uh, positions working, you know, at Woolworths and Coles stocking shelves. And it, that was really sad because when every, every restaurateur, I've heard this on a few of your uh, interviews that you've done on this podcast, the worst thing about being a restaurateur <laughs> in that situation was that we're meant to, we're used to protecting people and looking after people. And financially, we just weren't in a position to be able to just pay people at all. Um, and big credit to, to the team at Shibosho that, they went through that process. They never got upset with us, and we did our best to to try and do the things that we could within our own limitations. But, no, we got every one of them back, and they're all full-time again now. And then, ironically, I thought it was going to be really hard to find staff for the new place being Show Show, um, and it wasn't. Like, the team at Show Show is really, really strong. I haven't worked with half of them before, uh, but the quality of resumes and the quality of skill that, that we've, like, kind of put these guys through is pretty pretty much a standout like yeah we're in a good spot in both shops well that's pretty astounding that you've managed to hold on to the entire team um, and you are on the verge of opening the restaurant what are you excited about uh i really like the fact that the two restaurants there's i mean it's there's not 
they're never going to be a favourite. I mean, they're, they're both obviously close to my heart. And Shibosho obviously is the, the older one, and that's the one that kind of, like, from my side was the, the one that really kind of sparked what we're doing in Adelaide and, and made me my, probably the most inspired I've ever been. I just like the correlation between the two. I think they're completely different places, and I think that the good thing that Shosho's got it sits in a very affluent uh, suburb of Adelaide and it's a bigger restaurant with the ability and luxury of the fact that we've had three years, with well, three and a half years now at Shibosho working on our brand. Uh, Shosho is going to benefit from that because of all the work that's gone into it and it's also going to benefit from the mistakes that we made at Shibosho that we've learnt from. Obviously, the, there'll be more mistakes that we make at Shosho. It's a brand new shop, but it's it's pretty good to be in a position where that style of food in both restaurants is something that I feel super comfortable with and my business partners feel comfortable with as well. So just excited about the fact that we're going to do something different and, and going to make it this restaurant a part of the family of Shibosho. Well, um, as you know, I had a cracking feed at Shibosho um, and they sat, they sat me down directly in front of you at the kitchen yeah, counter. Yeah, the scariest <laughs> fucking dude I've ever cooked for, man. <laughs> fucking hell, man. <laughs> um, well, I had a great meal and that was great. And Terry, Terry and Jill uh, were like two seats down as well. It must have been a, a hell of an evening. Yeah, yeah, it was a really good time, man. I was stoked. <laughs> well, um, listen, have a have a uh, great time opening the new restaurant and good luck with it. And hopefully um, – it's as cracking as uh, as the meal I had at Shibosho um, about two years ago. And uh, thanks for joining us, mate. We're always great to chat. Thank you, mate. Cheers. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.